If you're tired of dieting and stepping on the scale, you're lacking energy and confidence, and you're ready to harness your inner athlete, then you're in the right place. I'm Sherry Shaban, and in each episode, I'll help you to rebuild your fitness identity and empower your deepest transformation so that health and fitness are not just what you do, but who you are. What's up, athletes? Welcome back to the show. Our existence is far more than the sum of our physical activity and dietary choices. It encompasses the multitude of experiences and events that shape us throughout our lives. While weight loss and strict regimens often take the center stage in our pursuit of wellness, the true challenge lies in addressing the emotional barriers and self-limiting beliefs that hinder our progress. Punishing ourselves through restrictive diets or exercise routine reflects a negative self-image and only reinforces and perpetuates detrimental self-beliefs. We all have something to overcome. However, our fixation on victimhood often makes it difficult for us to lose weight. We have the power to create the life we desire, and it all starts with showing compassion towards ourselves. Embracing self-compassion allows us to break free from self-loathing and the limiting mindset holding us back. Unfortunately, many of us shy away from embracing compassion because it doesn't fit within what our vision of masculinity looks like and our instinct to remain emotionally defensive. If you have been struggling with weight loss for long, this episode is for you. Listen and learn from John's valuable insights to address underlying emotional eating issues and his inspiring journey of healing from emotional eating to compassion and shedding 100 pounds in the process. John is the founder of Freedom Nutrition Coaching. His deep passion for behavioral psychology and brain-driven weight loss stems from his own experience of overcoming a harrowing attempted murder. After enduring numerous unsatisfying fad diets, he discovered the optimal nutrition approach, which enabled him to focus on the enjoyable aspects of a healthy lifestyle. Art athletes, we're just about to get into it. And before we do that, I want to remind you that if you have been struggling with self-limiting beliefs and you are looking for a way to overcome these obstacles that have created self-sabotage, then I want to invite you to join me in Transformation in Paradise this November 25 to December 2nd in the beautiful Blue Osa, Costa Rica, where during this magical week, we're going to be overcoming self-limiting beliefs the things that have been holding us back from reaching that highest version of ourselves and through the process, releasing any addictive self-sabotaging habits. Now, just a reminder, if you head on over to iTunes and you rate this podcast and send the review over to Sherry at SherryShaban.com, then you have a $500 voucher to join me in Transformation in Paradise. All right, athletes, now here's what you're going to be walking away with today after listening to this episode. Number one, how to heal from trauma and shift your perspective to look back at it with compassion. Number two, how to harness self-compassion and self-love from where you are to change your beliefs about yourself. Number three, how to make peace with your biological reality and create the life you desire and deserve. And number four, how to release baggage, identities, and labels that people have given you and break free from victimhood. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. 
oh man i'm super excited to be here and i said oh man because it's like <laughs> a natural part of our language oh man. oh man but we had a great chat offline and so i'm super excited to record this convo Oh, likewise. And we have a lot of really fun things to talk about. And we're, we are so aligned in so many things. And you are an expert emotional eating coach. And you've actually lost and kept 100 pounds off yourself. You're passionate about behavioral psychology and brain driven weight loss. And then I also understand that you've actually survived an attempted murder. And this was some time ago in South Africa. So we have so much to talk about. But first of all, welcome to the show, John, and maybe just give us a little intro about yourself. Yeah. So I'm Canadian as well. Eh? Yeah, eh? <laughs> For any American listeners, I'm north of Montana, east of the Rocky Mountains, living in beautiful Alberta, Canada. And uh, I'm a husband first, a father second, and then a professional third. And I think it's important to put it in that order because our human relationships are, are so, so important. I have an amazing wife of 17 years. I have a toddler uh, who is two and another one on the way at the time of recording this. And so life just gets really interesting. But why this is relevant also is because I try to remember why I do any of what I do. And you know, why do I want to be healthy? Because when my little kid says, Dada, get up, Dada, run, Dada, chase, I want to be able to. <laughs> So I also run a company called Freedom Nutrition Coaching. That, that name was kind of born out of someone who said, I don't want to live in nutrition prison anymore. And uh, it's all kind of a part of built into my own story of overcoming uh, binge eating and food addiction after going through trauma. Wow. Wow. So much to unpack. I love that. I think that's probably the best intro I've ever, ever heard. And especially that you choose to be a husband first and that you honor this relationship because on the show, we talk about everything. We talk about relationships. We talk about our spirituality. We talk about everything that is who we are because we are not just how much we move and how much we eat and the things that we do in life. Those are all labels, but instead we are all those things that happen to us and the life experiences. And it seems like you've had a life trauma that resulted in some of that self-sabotaging behavior. So maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So in a nutshell, I was living in South Africa. So my wife and I, we love to travel and we took the time to do it pre-kids. We figured we could either buy a house or travel the world. And we decided to travel the world. Best decision ever. But when we were living in South Africa, at one point, I was, I was jumped at night by four guys who tried to basically smash my head in with bricks. And that, that was a really like difficult thing to go through, not just physically, but and it, it was based on my skin color. Uh, they didn't know me. I didn't know them. It was purely, I, I just say that I was a representation of something they felt had historically oppressed them. They didn't know I was from Canada. And so the physical trauma was one thing, you know, I was concussed. I managed to escape before they managed to completely bash my head in. They'd done that to someone the night before. Apparently I learned after the police had showed up, turns out they were actually looking for these guys. But nonetheless, the emotional fallout from that, I was entirely unequipped to deal with that. So I'd been an athlete at university. I lived on rollerblades, except when I was in the chemistry lab, they wouldn't let me wear them in there for obvious reasons. I was a competitive basketball and volleyball player, loved weightlifting, got into even into powerlifting. And then this happens and totally, un, like I said, unequipped to deal with the emotional fallout from, it. I don't know how to deal with these big overwhelming emotions that are swarming me on a daily basis where I feel like I'm drowning in anger or anxiety or fear. And so I turned to food to cope and it wasn't a conscious decision, but and ironically, I'd say I'm grateful I turned to food instead of drugs or alcohol, because I understand now why people would turn to that. It felt like my head wasn't a safe place to be, but there's no escape from it. And so when I would eat something, it would give me some relief because I didn't have any other way to get relief from everything that was going on in my head. And I ballooned up to a little over 330 pounds. So that was like huge. But for a long time, I didn't even like fully recognize that this was happening to me. And this sounds like an interesting thing to say, 
because you think, well, isn't it physically obvious? Can't you see it in the mirror? But what's really fascinating is like what we see isn't exactly what's factually in front of our eyes. Because this happened kind of so suddenly, like it happened over about six months, but it really, it happened so suddenly and trauma kind of freezes us in time. There's a whole lot to unpack there. But because it happened like that, I still had this picture in my head of who I was, the athlete. I was vaguely aware of like weight gain, but there was a lot of dissociation from my body as well, trying to literally escape from my lived experience, but I couldn't. And so it took probably eight or nine months before it really hit me, like what had happened to me and where I had where I'd gotten to. Wow. Just holding space for this powerful share. And I just want to honor you for sharing that. And I so, so felt that energy and so brave to share such an intense trauma in front of so many people and to really even look back at it and with such a great level of awareness as to exactly what happened and even a sense of gratitude over what you turned towards for some relief. And now that you've gone through the whole experience and you look back at it, what is that perspective of what happened? Well, ultimately, I'm actually grateful for the experience. And to some people, that would be surprising to hear. Now, I wouldn't ask for it, and I certainly wouldn't ask for it again. But you know, there came a point in my experience where I was tired of being angry. I was tired of wanting to get revenge. I was tired of wanting to try to kill the people who tried to kill me, because I went to those places. I'm ex-military as well. And, you know, it's so, again, I look back and I think I'm like a hugger, you know, I'm like a big teddy bear. My kid just gets tons of affection from me. <laughs> and so it felt like this weird place to be where I felt so much guilt around the anger and sort of the desire for destructive vengeance that I felt in response to being traumatized. And there's always this little voice in my head that was like, this isn't who you are. And so on top of like the trauma was this guilt of going through feeling the way that I did and having the feelings that I did towards those who tried to kill me. And so I came to this place where I was just, it's actually exhausting to be so driven by like anger and rage. And so I realized in order to set myself free, I was going to have to forgive these men. And I never saw them again. I was asked to come back for the court case, uh, but I just wasn't in a place mentally to do that. Uh, we, were, we were back in Turkey with my brother at the time where he lives. So I didn't go back to South Africa for that. So I had to start the process of trying to forgive them. And, you know, I think a big question would be, well, how do you forgive people who tried to kill me? And who would, who would probably try again if they saw me? And it really started with asking this question of what happened to them. And it wasn't about excusing what they did, but it was trying to understand in their lived human experience, what happened to them, where eventually they got to the place where they were murdering people. What happened to them? And so when the anger would come up, I would try to cultivate this sense of compassion for them, where it's like, I imagine had they been raised in different circumstances, they wouldn't be those people. Wow. And so when trauma happens to us, right, it doesn't just happen to us, it happens to everyone else around us. And I'm so curious as to how your wife handled this whole experience and what was the impact that that had on her, on your other family members, and, and ultimately this vision that you both had of traveling the world. Yeah. Probably the biggest trauma at first was seeing me in the state that I was in. So thinking that she nearly lost her husband, that I nearly died that night. But often people would dismiss that because like, well, you weren't the one that was attacked. But this is something different. Like my wife and I love each other very much. And the thought, I was 29 at the time, the thought of losing your husband before he turns 30 is something that like, I don't think any wife really thinks about going through. But I was a difficult person to live with for a number of years. Because again, I wasn't really equipped to deal with this stuff. 
And so many times, not physically, but I kind of tried to push her away because I really developed very, or I should say, it really brought out in me feelings of worthlessness, like intense self-loathing and hatred because of becoming morbidly obese, no longer being the athlete, no longer being like the man that she had originally married and thinking like, your life would be better without me in it. So I was wrestling with not only PTSD, but anxiety, depression. I would have you know panic attacks followed by these crippling sort of blackness coming over me and not really knowing like what the way out was. And again, not knowing what to do. And so I would tell her like, you should just leave and go back to Australia, go back, be with your family. Like you're, you don't need me in your life. Your life would be better without it. And thankfully my wife is stubborn <laughs> and she still could see who I was underneath all of this. And not only that, but who I had the potential to be. And so she refused to give up on us and on our marriage. And, you know, she said like, no, I made the vows that we're together till death do us part. And I'm not, I'm not walking out on that. And so her stubbornness really kept us together through some of like my darkest times. And so I'm incredibly grateful and, and loyal and faithful to her because of that. Oh, so beautiful. You're making me so emotional today. And this is just oh, such a powerful story. And, you know, when we're in that place of darkness, and we're really seeing no way for us really to come out of it. You mentioned that you turn towards compassion and you turn towards gratitude and really a deeper sense of understanding of what the other people must have been going through, right? And so what sparked that place? Because when we're feeling that everything is completely futile and we're just in that negative headspace, how do we get out of it? Yeah. So here's what's really interesting is it was much easier to forgive the men who tried to kill me than to forgive myself for what I had essentially become. So it was probably within about a year of going through the experience that I was able to kind of forgive them. But now I had to go through the process of like, for one, trying to lose the weight. So trying to somehow get back to maybe a version of what I once was. And I joke that I've lost over 600 pounds because I've lost and gained the weight so many times. And those struggles around it, again, not understanding what I was doing, I guess, wrong or what I was wasting my energy on. My explanation of it was that I was somehow a failure. Now, if I could say I'm a pretty intelligent guy, I got my brain free of charge, so I can't take the credit for it. But part of what I wrestled with is like, how could I be so accomplished, like academically, you know, so intelligent, and yet I couldn't seem to help myself. Like no amount of information was sufficient. You know, and I, I really dove into nutrition science and supplement science, and I could even coach people effectively. I was effectively coaching people when I was 300 pounds. Because if I could say, like, I'm, I'm a born coach, it's like my calling in life, but I couldn't help myself. And that's what really contributed to this. So it took when I finally hired a sort of last ditch effort. Here, here's kind of what happened I was getting some life insurance. And so when we get life insurance, we have to do a health assessment. I was 35 years old. And I got weighed and at that time I was about 290 pounds and my blood pressure was like, you know, 160 over hundred and we couldn't get my blood pressure to come down. And essentially I had to get what's known as a rider put on my insurance policy. I had to pay an extra fee because it was a higher risk of dying at 35 years old. So I, I was being forced to confront, this is the reality of your situation. So then I hired a coach again and I thought I was hiring him because I wanted to look like him. You know, he's in great shape. And uh, so I was like, well, and he was, he was 42 or something at the time. So I was like, okay, he obviously can help me to get me where I want to go. Thing is, is, he didn't coach me the way that I was expecting him to coach me. And how's that? Yeah, well, I was still dealing with a lot of self-loathing and, and like beating myself up and just trying to punish my way into 
losing the weight. You know, I was probably using excessive amounts of dangerous stimulants. I was powerlifting. I was, you know, heavy metal listening, you know, rage lifting kind of thing, just trying to pummel my body into submission. And it wasn't working. I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown probably. And so he modeled for me what compassion really is. So prior to that, I probably would have been afraid of compassion because it didn't fit within my vision of what masculinity was supposed to look like. Compassion seemed like it was a feminine emotion. And because I, I was already so like emotionally defensive about who I'd become, and you know, I tried to be the jolly fat guy in public, but inside I was just dying. <laughs> when he modeled that for me, and at first it was really foreign. Again, my, my natural instinct was to try to push it away. I'm uncomfortable with somebody showing me compassion, but it's because I didn't feel like I was worthy of compassion. And so we had to start kind of chipping away at that. So it started with him, you know, the first four months working together, I didn't lose any weight. And I was like, you should just give up on me. Like, obviously I'm a failure. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like one of your failed products. I'm not going to fit in your trophy case or whatever. Like just, I don't know, go find somebody else. And again, he wouldn't give up on me. He just kept working at it. But he asked me the question that I say really changed my life. And that was, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? Mm, mic drop. Yeah. So I wasn't on the list, not even at the bottom. It hadn't really entered my realm of consciousness that I was allowed to be on a list of things I love and value. But that now gave us a starting point. Okay. What does self-love actually look like? And again, I had this idea that self-love was, I don't know, bubble baths and chocolate and candles and watching Bridget Jones' diary and eating ice cream or something. And so, of course, I rejected that idea. Again, it didn't fit in with my vision of what I thought masculinity looked like. Instead, we started with brushing my teeth. Brushing your teeth is a very simple act of self-care. So it's like, why do you brush your teeth? There, in other words, there's still something in you that sees some value in you. So let's start with that little spark there. And then we put a water bottle beside my bed. So I start drinking water every morning, hydrate a little bit. So it almost comes down to like, how do we change a belief we hold about ourselves? So I had this deeply held belief that I was not worthy of love. I was not worthy of care. It's partly why I was trying to push my wife away who loved me fiercely, right? I'm not worthy of this love you're trying to share with me. So I'm trying to push you away because it doesn't fit with my belief or my perspective or how I see the world. So it's like the circus elephant analogy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. Mm, yeah. The one that's you know chained to a stake when it's too small to pull it out of the ground. So then when you see this big, powerful elephant tied to a fence post, it doesn't believe it can actually break away from that. But if we tried to do something really dramatic, like I'd tried in the past, again, because that is too big a departure from where I was presently at, it wouldn't work. So we just chipped away at it bit by bit by bit. And so people ask, well, how long does it take you to lose 100 pounds? I was like, oh, probably six years. <laughs> like, like, let's be real. Like, I, you want to hear that it took me like eight months or something. But it wasn't about the weight. It was about everything else I had to work through to kind of get to that place where not only would I lose the weight, but I could keep it off. Right. right. And the weight just becomes this side effect of all of the things that we're doing, especially that harnessing that self-love, that self-compassion. And that's really where it has to start because most people punish themselves through exercise and they punish themselves through dieting. And it's really a reflection of their negative self-image, their negative self-talk. And that's just a way to fortify everything that they truly think of themselves. And so tell us more about your healing journey, because what I love that you said is that it was not linear. 
and that you you lost 600 pounds because it was this this constant almost roller coaster of a journey and some of us look at people's after photos which is what we spoke about offline earlier and we have all of these meanings and labels and already perceptions around how that journey must have gone and it must have come so easily for that person so share us a little bit about that healing journey well the hardest part for me is so somewhere in there I also had a business failure that cost me life savings <laughs> like and left me with a mountain of debt and a betrayal from a friend, former friend and crooked accountant and so on. So I got badly burned by that as well. I just throw that out there as a, as a bit of a backdrop to all of this. Thankfully, at that time, I was working with this coach named Scott, who was so transformational in helping me to even navigate that experience. When that happened, I transitioned to being an online coach, like a virtual coach exclusively. The problem is I was looking at social media and I was like, man, all I see is like these really fit people, like these fit girls in gym shark pants, these fit guys in board shorts and no shirts and stuff like that. And I don't look like that. And so it it kind of started this struggle again, this element of imposter syndrome. Well, like, who am I? Like, I can't, I'm not going to be posting shirtless photos on Instagram because I got loose, flappy skin. Like I've looked like you expect a nutrition professional to look like, even though I've lost a lot of weight, I don't have that physique. And so I had to kind of go back through this processing of, okay, well, like, where is my worth really found? You know, is it found in my physical appearance? So I finally confronted kind of head on the biggest thing that was scaring me. And that was the reality of my physical condition in a sense that like, I figured if everybody, like if people found out that I didn't look like a fitness model, that they wouldn't hire me. And so I was like, so I made this post back in about 2018. And I was like, I'm going to tell you the truth about me. And my story. And, and in my head, I'm just imagining everyone's going to reject me and leave. Like they're just going to be like, forget this guy. He's, he's total fraud, total imposter, whatever. And the response was overwhelmingly the opposite of what I was expecting. And people, there's this outpouring of support. And people just kept saying like, wow, you're human and relatable and you understand. And they actually loved the fact that I don't look like a fitness professional, like the ripped, shredded, whatever. And there's nothing against that. I understand the level of work and dedication that goes into cultivating that. I don't want people to mistakenly think that I'm, I'm knocking that, but it was my own struggle with like, I don't look like that, but they were like, wow, you, you will understand what it is like for us. And it feels safer to work with you than to work with someone who I have this picture, sort of this ideal of physical perfection. And my business actually really exploded. And I was like, that was entirely unexpected, but it kind of really helped me to make peace with, I, I was going to say like my, my biological reality. Wow. I love that so much. And, and that's what people want. Really, people want to relate to you. People want to know that you understand them. If I'm going to sign up with you, John, I want to know that you understand me. You get me. You feel my pain. In fact, you've experienced my pain. And it's so interesting because, again, you know, just proving that from the outside, it looks one way. And truly what's, what's going on is another something completely emotional and deeper than what we ever thought. And most people struggling for many, many years to release weight, it is not because there's a lack of discipline. It's because there's something deeper. There's an emotional block. There is a block around self-limiting beliefs that really must be addressed first before they can even start the process of that self-care and starting to implement those habits. You said something that I often quote with my own program, and that's side effects might include weight loss. I often also joke that nutrition is the cover story. So people come, let's say, to work with me, for example, because they, they want to lose weight. And fair enough. Hey, absolutely. I have some people that are working away from like 200 pounds weight loss, for example. And yes, physically, it's going to be very helpful and very, very beneficial for them. But until we address why they got to be, say, 200 pounds overweight and not make it about judgment, like, oh, because you're a terrible person and go, no, no, 
I, like I have this perspective or this lens that all behavior makes sense. Now, it doesn't mean that all behavior is good or all behavior is helpful or beneficial. But for me, compassion is like the central tenet of the work that I do now. And I have this sort of, I guess, analogy, if you will. So let's say, for example, uh, do you have advice or anything that like, you know, you've struggled with in the past around food? Well, I think I shared with you, I did start to develop binge eating patterns when I was being super restrictive around diets. And this is, and I didn't have weight to lose. It was really just, it was, it was absolutely psychological. Yeah. For sure. For sure. What, what would you reach for if you were going to binge, if I could ask? Oh, something sweet. Right. Okay. Like cake, chocolates. <laughs> right, right. So to make this sort of fit into the picture, I want to share, because I like to sort of illustrate what compassion really is, at least from my perspective. So let's say I, I drop by your place and uh, maybe you're halfway through a box of Oreos and you're just smashing these Oreos. So if I was to come to you and say, well, Sherry, are you an idiot? Like, why are you doing this? You know better than this. Like, are you stupid? The immediate response is not, oh, thank you so much for sharing that with me, right? Right. The immediate response is, well, shoot, I got caught. I need to get better at hiding this behavior. And we don't, we don't verbalize it in that way. But when we feel judged, see that behavior, there was a reason that behavior was happening. And it wasn't because you lacked information or lacked intelligence or things like that. So when we feel judged, it doesn't give us a reason to change the behavior. It's like, I'm going to get better at hiding it. Now, on the other hand, if I came to you and said, Oof, you're already halfway through, you might as well finish the whole thing now. It feels like compassion, right? Because I'm giving you permission to do this thing you're doing. But really, it's, it's enabling. So in other words, I'm afraid of holding that space for you to actually talk about what, what's happening. And so instead, I'm also using your, let's say, binge eating to avoid the uncomfortable sort of conflict, if you will, of us addressing what's really going on. So compassion walks the middle road. Compassion allows us to, without judgment, seek to understand why this behavior is happening. And so I say I create space for people to wrestle with their demons in the light. It's like, it's okay, because I still have my demons, right? Like, and I almost want to say that just because there's this idea that, okay, I've got this far, it must be on easy street. I'm like, no, no, no. There's more challenges like, hey, throw kids into the mix, <laughs> throw lack of sleep into the mix, throw, like, I'm becoming more in demand, which I mean, maybe I'll toot my horn a little bit. But I mean, it seems like a great thing, but there's also a challenge of trying to navigate this, my time and my energy and who gets what. And so life will always kind of be shifting around us. And we got to be able to do this in real life. And we got to be able to do this through shifting circumstances. So let's be kind of real about that. I love that. So good. So good. So here's an interesting question. If somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, John, I have an emotional eating behavior that I would really like to release. How would I go about that? How would you answer that? So, well, let's get curious because I don't know anything about you yet. So I want to know more of your story. Tell me about when, when did this behavior start? And when did you first become aware of this? You know, and, and I want to start to build a picture, you know, do you, are there any situations where this starts to happen? Can you sort of develop this awareness of like when this happens and we start to connect some dots. When I have a stressful day, I reach for chocolate. Oh, okay. What constitutes a stressful day? And so, because the way that our brain works, I mean, I'm actually the lead researcher with a neuroscience tech startup that we're running a coaching pilot that's based in well, neuroscience. And it's very cool. But it's like, I feel stressed. I eat chocolate. I feel better. Bingo. Your brain just learned something. And it's a very easy behavior to repeat. And the dopamine reward's pretty high. And so it's natural that behavior is going to occur. But then the next layer of that is now we start to develop a story to explain our behavior. 
okay, I'm a chocoholic. So now, okay. But if that's our belief, then every time we repeat that behavior, it's going to reinforce that belief, which then becomes a filter for our brain where the times we don't behave in alignment with that belief, we filter that out and we ignore that. And we start to create a cognitive distortion, an exaggerated version of reality about ourselves in our mind. So all of that to say, to take a step back is again, we want to start just by painting a picture. Like, Let me know your story. Let's get to know where this is taking place. What are the circumstances? And uh, let's take away this judgment about you doing that behavior and say, this behavior is your solution to a problem right now. Now, it's probably not the best solution, not the best long-term solution, but right now it's a solution to a problem. Let's start to understand that. I love it. I love that. Absolutely. And especially the story part, right? And it almost justifies why we're doing that thing that we're doing. And it starts to give us this identity almost around it. So let's talk a little bit about your podcast, John. So you have a podcast where I think you help people truly explore the truth in the journey when we see somebody's after photo or after results. So maybe expand a little bit on that. Why is that such an important message for you to share with the world? Yeah, so it's called Between the Before and After. And I feel like social media shows a before and after photo and we see it in like a moment in time and we picture this transformation happening as though it's like easy or seamless and so on. And it doesn't really give the space to truly expand and explore and understand the story behind it. And so I wanted people to understand that going on a transformation journey, well, let me give you this analogy. I'll call it my tunnel of sewage. So when we picture a transformation journey and we see a before and after, maybe we think of something like this. So I show up with a pair of unicorn steeds, you know, glistening white, you know, rainbow mane and all of this. And we're going to actually ride the rainbow up to the clouds, the rainbow bridge to the clouds. And then we're just going to go from cloud to cloud to cloud and then get down to the other side when the transformation is complete. In other words, as though we're going to bypass all of that life throws at us and just, just, just going to be the effortless, smooth, frictionless transformation. The reality is very, very different. It's actually like you're standing in front of a tunnel of waist deep sewage with hip waders on and you're ready to start going through that. This tunnel is dark and it's kind of stinky and it's not easy to go wading through this. And most people retreat after a few steps in. So now I come along with a couple of kayaks and I go, hey, it looks like you're about to go through the tunnel of sewage. This is going to make it a little bit smoother. You're not going to be alone in this journey. And uh, you still got to paddle your kayak, though. I can't paddle it for you. But I brought some headlamps so we can kind of get an idea of what the situation is here. We don't know where the curves are and so on and so forth. But in this tunnel is 10 million bucks. So we're going to go through that. Now, I share that to say this is what transformation actually looks like. And so between the before and after is about going into that metaphorical tunnel of sewage with people and talking about their time spent in these difficult places and experiences. So we understand, so we're not surprised when a transformation journey is actually a challenge, when it's uncomfortable, when it's sometimes it's ugly, sometimes it's dirty and it's messy. And we go, okay, there's not something wrong with me when this is what my transformation journey looks like, because this is actually what it looks like for most people. Yes. Oh, so important. So important. And I think I shared this also with you offline earlier. I get a lot of messages often, especially if people don't know my backstory. And, you know, usually it's, you make it look so easy and you're so lucky. And I know you're like, it's, you know, you naturally look that way and all that. And it's so interesting because when I do share my story, my message really to the world is if I could do it, anybody can do it. And so as I shared with you earlier, you know, I've had surgery on my back twice. I was hit by a car when I was 16. 
And I was very close to paralysis. And so for me, health and fitness was not about what I wanted to look like. It was really more about strength and stability and really being self-sufficient and not really needing to rely on anybody to help me do anything. And so that's always been the ultimate goal. And as a side effect of all of the habits that I was doing to help me build up that strength and stability, there was a physical transformation. And so when we're really focused on the present moment, when we're focused on transformation being right now and really embodying the emotion of what we want to create in our life. And for me, it was just feeling more empowered and we create a consistency long term and we make this a part of our life. We make this a part of who we are. The side effect will be that weight release. The side effect will be releasing all of the extra baggage, which is what I truly believe weight is. I believe we all have baggage that we need to release. And sometimes that's limiting beliefs. Sometimes that is really identities and labels other people have given to us and traumas that we need to just release and let go and maybe give a brand new perspective and meaning around as you have in order to maybe empower ourselves to help others to do. And so that's always been sort of my perspective, and it's so important when people hear the true story that they realize that, no, it does not come easy. And every single person has an obstacle. Everybody has something to overcome. And oftentimes, we're so stuck on that being who we are, our identity, and being a victim of that circumstance that we have a hard time releasing it and not knowing that we can actually create the life that we want simply by making the choice, and the choice is always ours to make. Well, it's very interesting you mentioned the word victim because there is a real appeal to that because being a victim garners sympathy and sympathy feels good. And so when we're hurt and we're wounded and we're feeling broken and someone shows us that, we're like, ooh, I want more of that. And the allure then is to stay in that place of victimhood. I could have been angry for the rest of my life that people tried to do this to me. And I could have used that as a justification for why I wasn't changing, but really it's my own fear that would be stopping me from changing. What happens if I let go of this? What happens if I adopt a new identity? What happens if I let go of the jolly fat guy, the one that's actually kind of fun at parties? Because maybe there's this idea that being fat was all bad. Not necessarily. I mean, being able to eat with kind of reckless abandon, if you will, being able to not think about food, not apply cognitive effort, because let's be real. In this modern world, to be healthy and maintain a healthy weight is hard. We live in a world that's essentially engineered to make us obese. We are surrounded with calorie-dense, nutrient-empty food that is highly addictive. We're surrounded with technology that makes us want to be sedentary, that's tapping into actually our biological wiring. We have a famine biology that wants us to move as little as possible and store as much fat as possible. Because for most of humanity, we didn't have calorie surplus. We had barely enough calories to survive. That's what we're up against. So in, to be a victim says, well, I don't have to struggle against this anymore. So then what makes us willing to struggle? And that's the question I try to dig out of people as well. I call it our emotionally compelling reason. Why do I get out of, the, out of bed in the morning when I'm, I, I'm feeling stiff? I've had two motorcycle accidents. I have a hip that's kind of dysfunctional right now. And I could get frustrated by that. And to be fair, some days I am frustrated by it. However, after recording this episode, I'm going to go on a 40 kilometer bike ride with a buddy of mine. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're going to go riding through some trails and along the river and things like that. And so I pick, well, what can I do? Because I could focus on, okay, what are the things that I can't do because my mobility has been impaired and so on. I could get really frustrated by this. And again, I could fall into that place of victimhood, but instead I, I decided to turn my attention to, well, what can I do while I work through this limitation that's shown up in my life? You know. And so I, I get it. If anyone wants to be a victim, I get it. It's attractive to some degree, but it keeps us stuck. Right. Absolutely. And generally the, the victimhood 
sort of ties in with the anger, the feelings of frustration. And that really is a drive for significance. And it really feeds that feeling of certainty. When we're angry, when we are attached to being a victim, we feel important. We feel significant. We have a particular identity. This happened to me. This wasn't my fault. And it's their fault. And there's a lot of blame and there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of self-loathing also that is attached to that. And so what's super interesting is just understanding that, again, if we're wanting to change and, and we decide to reassign that form of significance on something else and something greater than us, something outside of ourselves. And if it is our children, if it is this act of really helping humanity to evolve and to really help others in a way that is so satisfying and empowering, I believe we're able to pull ourselves out of that. This was really a powerful conversation, Jonathan, and we're, we're coming now to the top of the hour and just wanted to, to just check in with you and see if there's anything that you want to share with the audience that you haven't had a chance to yet. I would say that compassionate awareness is the foundation of transformational change. Just to expand a little bit, in order to create change, we first have to become aware of where we're at. So it means we have to acknowledge the uncomfortable truth. And without compassion, we'll just judge ourselves and fall into that sort of self-loathing, self-hating pattern that I fell into. So compassion allows us to see ourselves where we're at right now without judgment. Because if I said, deal, let's go on a road trip. And you said, cool, where are we starting? I said, I don't know. We can't go anywhere. We can't plan anything. So we have to get to this place through compassion that allows us to see ourselves where we're exactly at. Now, along the way, we're going to trigger things. We're going to bring up things. We're going to, the very process of creating change is going to bring up the ugly things inside of us. We all have them, but that compassion allows us to keep moving forward. So we bring those things into our awareness and through the lens of compassion, give ourselves the freedom to move through them. So beautiful. I love that. And what a beautiful way to end this beautiful conversation. I've enjoyed every moment speaking with you offline and online. You're really a beautiful, radiant light, Jonathan. And I love what you do. And I hope that you continue to do what you do and continue to inspire others onto that journey of becoming that highest version of themselves. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you or connect with you, where can they go to do that? Uh, FreedomNutritionCoach.com you can book a chat with me, you'll talk to me and I'll sound just like I do right now when I chat with you. You know, it, it really is just an honest, uh, open conversation. And if you want to check out the podcast between the before and after.com as well, I'd love people to check out and have a listen and be inspired by some of the, the very amazing stories on that show as well. Amazing. Thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of fall in love with fitness. Whether you're already on your fitness journey or just getting started, we're in this together. Just head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review, and you'll be entered into the drawing to win my six-week transformation course. Then go to fallinlovewithfitness.com and get your free gift from me so you get back your energy and reinvigorate your life. Join me on the next episode, and remember, you are an inspiration.